0: Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. My guest today is John Kage, an American philosopher and writer and the author of the book Six Souls, Healthy Minds, How William James Can Save Your Life. This is a fascinating discussion that covers a lot of ground related to living the good life. John talks about COVID-19 and how it is both forcing us to ask challenging questions like, what am I going to do with my life? And what is my purpose, while also affording us the time and space to reflect on these questions. John also shares his experience of recently surviving a massive heart attack at age 40 and what that experience has taught him about living the best life possible while facing mortality. We cover the topic of, is life worth living? And I think you'll find William James's answer to this question quite intriguing, and it will force you to think a little deeper, at least it did for me, We discuss the connection between emotion and activity, and why the Nike slogan, Just Do It, is more profound than might first appear. We cover the role that habit plays in our life to both help us achieve happiness and, when it comes to bad habits, preventing us from achieving happiness, and I encourage you to stay through to the end when we get to a discussion about the importance of going all-in in life if you want to flourish. I hope you enjoy my conversation with John as much as I did. My friends, I bring you John Keg. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well lived. John Keg, welcome to The Good Life. Your book, Sick Soul, Healthy Mind, How William James Can Save Your Life, is a wonderful exploration of William James and what he can teach us about living a deeply meaningful and flourishing life. I'd like to start by asking you how James might advise us as we all try to navigate through COVID. You know, For many of us, our lives have been disrupted. It has added additional stress and anxiety. Some of us may have lost loved ones, others lost a job. But it also has offered many of us more time to reflect, to ask deep questions about life, our purpose, how we want to spend our time. There is, I believe, a real opportunity here. So what would James tell us about living in these unique times?
1: William James, born in 1844 and he died in 1910. most of his writings sort of turned from 1890 to 1910. So Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau the American Transcendence, I anticipate James and sort of form the background for James's thought. And what's interesting about both of these thinkers is that they said, in Henry David Thoreau's words, he says, it is healthy to be sick. And what Thoreau meant by that was sickness has certain opportunities. It affords us opportunities to think through very difficult questions about life's meaning. It also insists that we slow down enough that we have time to think. And so Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson, said a very similar thing. He was 18 years old. He got very sick. And in 1821, he said, temporary sickness has its advantages. And many of the questions that we ask in everyday life or should ask in everyday life don't go ask. We don't ask them because we're too busy with the rat race. And Emerson, even at the age of 18, says sickness allows us to slow down and to reevaluate what life's meaning actually is today there are walkers that have never taken up walking before and we're having to find ways to express ourselves many of us are painting or writing or reading drawing these ways of expressing ourselves that we typically don't think about or have time to do in our everyday life this is where we're coming to now james i think was very good on this And he said that even in times of great turmoil, we have the ability to find creative activities to change the habits of our lives. James is a psychologist, the founder of empirical psychology in the 1890s, and James wrote extensively on the power of habit. And maybe that's where we can talk to the interest in chatting a little bit more about that.
0: Definitely. Why don't you describe what James meant by sick soul? and what he also meant by healthy mind, these are two different approaches to life, then you can touch on the role that habit plays in both, because I think that's important.
1: The six soul person is a person who looks at the universe and who sees the universe as something alien to him or her, as something that is ill-fit for them. And the healthy-minded, according to James, is the person who looks out and sees the universe as a sort of personal, caring, vow as something that is fitted to their purposes. During times of crisis, however, the healthy-minded can get a taste of sick-souledness, and I think that's what's going on in our current age. When it comes to habits, James is suggesting that if we are sick-souled, we still have the ability to, in his words, be twice-born. And what he means by that is, we might have been born a particular way see the world as pessimistic, as dour, as something antagonistic to our purposes. But James suggests that we can form habits of thought and habits of action that make our lives not only bearable, but deeply meaningful. And he thinks that habit, along with Aristotle, that human beings are habitual creatures. Habit is just the way we get on in the world. And that oftentimes habits are heuristics or shorthand ways of handling experience, different experiences. They make our lives easier. But James observed that sometimes the habits of thought or habits of action that we take can actually be deadening or stultifying or just plain old boring. And at those times, habits need to be broken. And I think that James is interested both in the ways that habits can be formed and creatively or meaningfully, but also the way that habits can limit us and the necessity to break them at particular points. James was famous in the late 1890s talk which he entitled Talks to Teachers, he says that Norwegian women of that day and age were used to staying at home, and that they were, quote, fireside tabby cats, but that when they took up Nordic skiing in the 1890s or in the early part of the 20th century, they became fierce warriors. They did something difficult, they changed their habits, and in so doing, they changed who they are. And I think that that's what James has challenged for us these days. So when we're depressed or when we're feeling cooped up or when we're feeling like there's nowhere else to go, James says, quote, be not afraid of life and change your life. You almost always have the ability to do that, even if it's in very small ways.
0: You talk in the book about one of James's ideas, which really struck me, which was when you feel the need to change It's almost like the Nike slogan, just do it. You might need to break out of that habit if you're in a habit that's detrimental. It's the act of will and just taking that step. Sometimes it's even a physical step, some kind of physical movement that lifts the spirits and gets you moving and gets you back in touch with becoming more one with your environment and aligned with it as opposed to being out of it. And I found that it's true in my life too. And I just think that's really powerful.
1: I think so too. And I mean, it's backed up or grounded in James's theory of the emotions. So, James, unlike many people, thinks that the emotions are tied inextricably, like absolutely tightly to action. And it is not the case that I smile because I'm happy, but rather that I'm happy because I smile. In other words, our physical activity changes the way we feel. It's not the case that my physical actions are just a reflection of my emotional state, but rather I've got to get up and go. In some cases, I have to look up, I have to open my throat, I have to get a good breath of fresh air, and it changes my emotional state. And this is interesting, it's almost like you bootstrap yourself out of a bad mood by just acting. In other words, you're in bed, You're depressed. And the one thing you don't want to do is get up and go anyway. But many people know, I know, this doesn't work for everyone, but many people have experienced the fact that if you can just force yourself to get up and go by an act of will, it changes the emotional disposition that we have. Yoga is a perfect example of this. You might not want to do these poses, but these poses actually change the way you feel. And I think James was tapping into that. It's called the James Lang theory of emotions, that activity is first and the emotions follow suit.
0: I think everyone has certain kind of go-tos for that. I think it was interesting in the book, you talk about yoga being a way for you to kind of tap into that and through the movement of your body to move your soul and get your mind going, staying healthy. For me, it's running. Like I will often have low energy early in the afternoon start to feel like, well, I'm just going to take it easy because I don't really feel like doing anything this afternoon. But I know if I can just will myself to go for a run, I'll feel so much better when I get back and just kind of ride the wave of that energy through the afternoon. And you have to take that step though.
1: What's interesting is that I used to be a very avid runner, but in February of this year, I was running on a treadmill in a gym and I felt lightheaded and I stepped off and my heart started beating fast and I laid down and I had a heart attack and I'm 40, I was in very good shape and they diagnosed me with a congenital heart issue and a week later I had open heart surgery. And it's now mid-April, I had the procedure March 6th and I haven't run for three months. But there are small things that you can do in life, even when you're in a compromised state like the one that I've been in in the last month, last few months, that make a huge difference. You can stretch, you can breathe deeply, you can go for a walk, you can appreciate the little things that oftentimes you've never appreciated before. And I think that, I mean, in philosophy, there's a sort of criticism of many philosophers being called ableist. What that means is, certain thinkers regard human experience as being linked to being able to do certain things, like to think, walk, any number of things. And James is sometimes criticized for being an ableist because he was an avid hiker and walker and he, he was just constantly on the go. And he says that being on the go is a, some, something that makes you happy and makes you human. But I think James's message is a little more subtle. He's saying, even when you're compromised, even when you have a heart difficulty you can still make small modifications to your existence that you can find deeply meaningful. So that's one of the lessons that I've taken from James relatively recently.
0: So you've, in the last month or so, been through not just the coronavirus and changes to our society, but gone through this personal health challenge. Has that filtered how you've looked in observing the rest of society changing or changed how you thought about this whole experience we're going through?
1: Yes. We're all dying. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that we're all on the way to the grave, which sounds pretty darn bleak, but it's the truth of the matter. And the question in life is, how are you going to deal with that? Søren Kierkegaard, who's a Danish philosopher writing the early 1840s, said, I have a question. What am I to do with this life? The central question is, what am I to do? And that's the question that we're all faced with. I think having a heart attack at the age of 40, when you think that you're quite fit, can be a wake-up call. I think having friends who are stricken with COVID-19 and who either die or who are very, very sick is a wake-up call. Albert Camus says in The Myth of Sisyphus, he says there is but one serious philosophical question, and that is suicide. Which most people are like, oh my God, he's such a depressive. But again, what Camus is saying is the question is, is life worth living? And that's the question that I think is pressed on us when we unexpectedly fall ill. And I had sort of a crash course in this a month and a half ago. And I think that that's a lesson that James says to us do something difficult every day. And I think that surviving something like quarantine with kids with no school, a heart attack, Frederick Nietzsche says, I have to thank my sickest days for they have allowed me to become who I am. And I think it gives you a little bit of perspective. And for that matter, I think it gives you a bit of compassion and sympathy for those people who are suffering, because oftentimes in our everyday life, we try to avoid suffering. But this is one of the first times in my lifetime, at least, where I get the sense that people are experiencing their own separate hells, their own separate tortures. But oddly enough, those separate quarters are what bring us together. When I see people walking outside, sometimes by themselves, sometimes with their families, sometimes trying to corral four kids at once, I see that we're all doing this in our own ways, and it's quite difficult. And I think that difficulty is a point of commonality between us. Let me say that again. The difficulty that we face by ourselves is a commonality between individuals. And I think that that's something that we have to remember and something that we miss in our everyday life. In our everyday life, we oftentimes think that ethical communities are set up by way of similarity, common allegiances, loyalties. But I think that the biggest ethical community is just the community of sufferers. And so I think when you get sick like this, or when you face sickness the way we all are currently, I mean, 60% of us will get this herd immunity. We're facing this. We're looking at right and face. And I think one of the silver linings is that maybe we get to see that we're common in that experience.
0: One of the reasons that I wanted to start this podcast is to explore what it means to live a flourishing life, what it means to live a good life. It gets to the question of the meaning of life, purpose, and the idea that you just sort of presented about facing death. I mean, nothing clarifies the mind like thinking about The finality of death. I think in your book, you said something like nobody gets out alive. So, reading, thinking, reflecting on these issues is something that we all have a little bit more time to do now that we, many of us, that we're going through this. I want to go back to James's answer to is life worth living? And it depends on the liver. What is it about the liver that can infuse meaning into life? What is it about? The one who says yes to life, who says yes to the suffering in life, even. What is it about that particular path that we can learn from?
1: Great question. I mean, I think that the question is life is living is usually answered in two mutually exclusive ways yes or no. And if you answer no fervently enough, you're eventually going to leave us. And if you answer yes, then you oftentimes find any number of well-crafted rationales for why life is worth living every day of the week, okay? You find some sort of absolute answer to this question, which is what many philosophers in the history of Western philosophy have done. So, for example, Leibniz, Michael leibniz says that we live in the best of all possible worlds. Christian theologians like Aquinas or Augustine say that God is in charge and heaven forbid we ever destroy God's creation. Emmanuel Kant says something similar. He says we're all rational beings; that human life is always worthwhile if we have our rational capacities. These are all absolute answers. And what's weird about these absolute answers are that when you are in the midst of a depression or when you're sort of struggling with the idea of suicide, these absolute answers just don't matter. So you say, my rational capacities bring me happiness and make life worth living, you've got to be kidding. My rational capacities make me more miserable, right? The smarter I am, the worse I become. So in the face of depression or great anxiety, these absolute answers typically don't hold water. And what William James is doing in the 1890s is saying, hey, let me give you another answer. He's saying, the answer is not no, And it's not yes, it's maybe. In other words, it's right down the middle between these two. And he's saying it depends on the liver. And you can take this in a number of different ways, which I think are interesting. First, James is not saying that life is absolutely worth living, including on Sundays. Okay, every day. He's not saying that. He's saying it's up to you to determine life's worth, always. That's the absoluteness. In other words, each of us has the ability to determine what life's meaning will be. Maybe life is worth living. It depends on the liver, is an answer that's right down the middle between yes and no. And what James is saying is maybe it depends on the liver. He is not saying to any of us that life's worth is absolute. There might be people who experience such trauma or experience such psychic disturbance that life is not worth living. And to those people, James is going to concede. He's going to say, I don't fully understand your experience. It may seem like life is not worth living to you, and I have to respect that. But he's also saying to us that almost always, life is up to us, and the meaning of life is up to us. So when I'm up on Brooklyn Bridge looking over the edge, and somebody comes up to me and says, life's definitely worth living, I turn around to them and I say, come on, you don't understand me, and maybe I'll jump just to prove them wrong. Okay, But if I'm up on Brooklyn Bridge and somebody comes up to me and says, hold on, maybe life is worth living. It depends on the liver. First of all, at least it respects me as a human individual right? or as somebody who's experiencing something real. It says maybe. But this individual who's coming up to me is saying, hey, maybe life's possibilities are still out there. Maybe you have options. Maybe tomorrow is a different day right? Maybe you have the ability to change your life. And I think that this answer is more convincing oftentimes than a simple yes. And the, the reason is, is that it gives us freedom or it gives us power. And oftentimes when we uh, are feeling depressed or anxious, we feel powerless. And what James wants to do is to give that autonomy or that freedom back to us and say, create your life. Be not afraid of life. Right? Tomorrow is another day. And I think that that's a message that I found very, very useful in my own life, and one that I've tried to pass on to readers. There's also a way that James says at the end of this talk, is life worth living, which he gives to the YMCA in 1895, Cambridge YMCA in 1895, responding to the number of suicides on Harvard's campus at that time. He says at the end of that talk, he says, if you are not satisfied with the maybe, quote, maybe, consider all of the maybes of life and how they make life meaningful. And I've oftentimes thought to myself, what do you mean by that? But like, what? how, does, how do the maybes make my life meaningful? And I think it's something like this. When I ask my students what the most meaningful things in their life, they say, well, it's music, or it's relationships, or it's playing soccer, or it's some experience. And I've thought over the years that this is where the maybe fits in. That when I say something like, if you knew how the soccer game is going to go, they say no. And I say, if you knew the outcome of the soccer game, would it be a meaningful thing for you? No, they say. And I say, well, so you're saying that you're playing because of a maybe. Maybe I'll win, maybe I'll lose. I have to engage to see how it goes. they nod they say yeah and i say how about music if you knew how every chord was going to play like it was some sort of like phonograph or some sort of recorder would it be enjoyable and they say no okay and i say well maybe is there too maybe it goes one way maybe it's another it's up to you how about when you fall in love how about when you have friends if these things were planned out in advance in its deterministic fashion would you find them meaningful significant no So, I ask them about relationships. I say, what about the meaning of relationships? Doesn't that also turn on the maybe? And they say, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. So, I think James was saying that the universe is shot through with what James would call contingency or chance, and that our lives are too. And the task of life is to make the chances of the universe are the opportunities that we have. And that's something that I think James is very good on.
0: I really like that answer, and one of the reasons I like it is that it suggests that there is no answer in a book or a philosopher who's going to say, hey, Sean, this is the meaning. This is how you're going to find purpose in your life, or this is the absolute reason we're here, or this is so profound that you're going to bow down and realize that now you found meaning. What it's saying is, hey, Sean, you've got to work hard to figure out for you what that meaning is in your life, given your situation and experiences and the maybes in your life that you are going to go out and try to realize. And this sort of gets to something that I keep coming back to around meaning, which is creation and art. And I'm going to just go back to your other book briefly. I know this podcast is mainly about six souls and healthy mind, and I want to encourage the audience. There's John's other book, Hiking with Nietzsche that I've read is also very good. There's something in there around the will to live, the will to power, that you describe Nietzsche's will to power as really about art and creation. And I think those are all intertwined. Perhaps it is in creation, whether it's creating relationships, creating art, writing, experiencing the world, like a soccer game could be a creation in my mind. And that there's something about that idea that really... Is compelling for me. And I think James is getting at it from his perspective and Nietzsche is from his. And they're really telling us, hey, you've got to go out into the world and do it.
1: That's right. They're also saying that creation, if we think about it, is a mixture of will and receptivity. In other words, it's a middle point between our will creating something and the world receiving it and us adjusting our behaviors to the world. And I think that that's an important point especially at a time when our will doesn't seem to be that effective. It's also about receptivity, about listening, about being aware, about being quiet. And so creation happens by activity, but also by passivity, by sitting back and also to be receptive in the right way. And I think there's always this give and take with creation that I think is really important, especially today. Like what is it to be cooped up in social isolation? How can we be receptive in a new way that is meaningful? How can we act in a new way?
0: Exactly. Yeah, we're all sort of in new environments, different environments, faced with novel sort of experiences. And in that, it, in some ways, it gets us out of the habits. You know, this kind of gets back to habit. The habits that we were in, you know, getting in the car, commuting, or getting on the airplane to fly here to do this or that for a business meeting or workshop, all of those habits have sort of been broken. A lot of my traditional habits were kind of out the window. So now I'm in new situations, forced to kind of create my own experiences or my own maybes of how I'm going to deal with these situations.
1: My friend Todd May, who advised the show The Good Life, wrote a book called A Decent Life. And Todd basically makes the argument that our drive for perfectionism is in part sort of misguided, and what we need to do is just get back to just living a decent life, both in the sense of like, okay, decency, but also decent in the sense of it's good enough, okay, and I just do a little bit better, or I try to do a little bit better. And I think that these more modest goals are ones that we can sort of live up to in these times of crisis as well. It's not that we have to be moral exemplars all the time, okay, just find a little bit of decency. Find a little bit of compassion, a little more creativity, find a little more receptivity. These are like small things that you can go to bed at night and think, I tried and I did not do a bad job. I did a decent job. And I think that that's something that, at least for me, especially over the last month and a half, I've had to come to terms with. Like I'm a big time perfectionist to the point where I would kill myself in terms of trying to be more perfect. And over the last weeks, I've just had to say, just a little bit better is good enough. Okay. Good enough that's the slogan for these days good
0: enough Yes, lowers the bar and that takes the anxiety level down a little bit about trying to reach that perfection or living up to something. I' just sort of experienced that ethos on the street and you run into someone keeping your six or eight feet distance and in those kind of conversations it's like, hey, we're getting through, we're surviving
1: One more day closer to the antidote, okay just one more. you just have to think and then As we were talking about earlier, when you face your own mortality, you also have to think, okay, good enough is not good enough, okay, we don't have that much time left. So you have to really balance this sense that I'm just getting through, I'm getting through one more day, and have to find moments where you find real transcendence or the sublime in the ordinary. I mean, we're surrounded by our loved ones, most of us, or some of us, the lucky ones, are surrounded by loved ones. And we have the option to find them highly annoying or to find them absolutely beautiful and probably in equal measure. And what I think what needs to happen is to think, how would I be acting right now with my loved ones if I contracted this bias or if I only had two weeks left? And more often than not, I would act slightly different. I'd act a bit more appreciative, or a bit softer, or a bit kinder, Or I'd let things that you typically annoy the head heck out of me, go, because it's just not worth it.
0: Yeah, just not that big of a deal facing that kind of circumstance. So one thing that I noticed in James's life that we haven't talked about yet, but you go into detail in the book about his upbringing. And he was raised with a very privileged childhood. I would say he had a considerable degree of freedom to sort of be the person he wanted to be and choose the life that he wanted to choose. In that respect, I think he was a little bit ahead of the game in the modern world, in the world that we live in today. He was living, what, roughly 100 years ago. We have more freedom now. And the freedom for James, well, maybe you could talk about from your perspective, what was it about that freedom and that childhood that led him to these ideas? And what can we take away from today's world where our kids are being raised with a similar amount of freedom? And we're all sort of facing the James life now. Due to our almost our affluence and our success, more of us will be asking the same questions that James did because of what he went through.
1: The James family came from Ireland in the late 1700s and ended up in Albany, New York. And William James, the eldest, William of Albany, became the second wealthiest individual in New York State after the Astors. And so William James and Henry James, his brother, and Alice James, their sister, they all grew up in a family of affluence. And Henry James, their father, encouraged them to use their minds in any way they wanted and to be free in any way that they want. What is interesting is that when you look at William James's life, there is a time in his 20s where it's almost paralysis by analysis. He has too many options and he has too much freedom, and he can't figure out how this goes. And what's interesting is that William James comes out of this experience feeling very bound up, both paralysis by analysis, but also thinking that he's not free in some sort of metaphysical sense. In other words, that the laws of nature are against him, and that in fact, that no human being is free, that we're all controlled by the laws of nature. Now, I think the lessons that we can learn from James for some of us, when we experience this wide array of freedoms to realize a couple of different things. One is remember James's theory of emotion and action. James would say, it doesn't actually matter that much what you choose beforehand. Just act and put your back into it. And then it changes the way that the world operates. It changes the way that you feel and you will notice how you feel. So just act. And just put yourself into something. It doesn't actually really matter a huge amount what, just put your back into it, which James did with the principles of psychology in the 1890s. He just put it back into writing this two-volume work, which basically killed him. But he wanted to be a painter, he was interested in music, but he picked something and he dedicated himself. So that's maybe the first takeaway. The second takeaway that James only came to later in life is: my God, are we lucky to have these options. And Many people don't have these options. This is what James came to later in life as well. He said that we have a certain blindness in human beings, that the affluent have a certain blindness in human beings where we can't see that other people are, A, suffering, or B, are not afforded the same options that we are. The third is there are no absolute answers to life's questions and that we can change and are free to do so. And James does change the course of his life and it multiple times. So he goes from principally teaching anatomy to Harvard, to writing the principles of psychology, to becoming a full-fledged philosopher and sort of forming a school, American pragmatism, to then working back through his interest in spirituality and religion in the varieties of religious experience. People would say, oh, James, you're all over the place. One of the beautiful things about James's work is that he was all over the place, but that he put his back into everything he did. I mean, that was quite clear. And I think that that's something that we can take away.
0: There's a wonderful passage in the book. I think it relates to what James is saying about put your back into something. I'm going to read it. You quote it. It's James. He says, wherever a process of life communicates an eagerness to him who lives it, there the life becomes genuinely significant. Sometimes the eagerness is more knit up with the motor activities, sometimes with the perceptions, sometimes with the imagination, sometimes with reflective thought. But wherever it is found, there is the zest, the tingle, the excitement of reality, and there is importance in the only real and positive sense in which importance ever anywhere can be. I thought that's the closest I took away from your book, and what I gleaned from James's work by reading your book, where he was saying, this is the way. He was pointing me, at least when I was reading, this is the way forward. Look at your life, find out where that energy and passion is, and then to your words, put your back into it. Go into it. That's where importance really lies, and we have to be open and reflective and have our perceptions out to know where that is, and then we've got to go all in. As I look around in my life and I see people who are flourishing, for the most part, I think they're people who've gone all in in certain ways of their life.
1: I would suggest thinking about it this way too, is that the zest, that feeling of excitement, the feeling of significance that one experiences, are you ever going to come to the end of your life and look back on those zestful moments and be like, oh, I was wasting my time? No. And I think that that's one of the things that these American philosophers, pragmatists, William James, but also the transcendentalists give us so when Henry David Thoreau goes out to Walden, he says, I went to the woods to live deliberately to make sure that I don't get to the end of my life and discover that I haven't lived. Right. So living deliberately, I think, is putting your back behind the ass. In other words, because when I get to the end of my life, I don't want to discover two things that I think oftentimes happens. I mean, death is not the scary part. It's getting to the end of life and discovering you haven't lived. I mean, that's the scary part about death. It's not the dying the dying part's just, you know, everybody does it. The dying's not scary. Getting to the end and being like, oh, crud, that was my life? That's the scary stuff. That's the stuff nightmares are made of.
0: The dying won't be scary if you are content at the end to know that you followed the zest, and you followed your purpose, and you lived the life that you wanted to live.
1: Sounds exactly like Socrates. Philosophy is preparation for death, Okay. I mean, life is just a euphemism for dying. That's what we're doing. So what we have to do is to figure out how to die well and how to live well. And I think that this is the time to be negotiating these when we're cooped up at home, when we have a sickness at our doorstep, do it now. I'd say to my students, like philosophy is spring training for the rest of your life. which basically means while you still have the chance to be reflective and change your life, do it now. Because when you get to the very end, That's going to be the point where you think, oh, crap, I should have done something else, right? And then there's no more time. That's the tragedy of all this. And I think that that's where we have to be mindful.
0: Well, that's a wonderful note to end on. John, where can people find out more about you and your writing?
1: So johnkegg.com is my new website, and I have some books on there and some paintings that I've done around my books. Also, Frauer, Strauss, and Giroux is my publisher their website, and also Princeton University Press, where I publish Six Souls, Healthy Minds, How William James Can Save Your Life.
0: Great. John, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for being on The Good Life.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.